0: The year is 1973,
2: and... Excuse me, Paul, can you pick me up from the airport?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, just tell me where you are exactly, and I'll send the limousine for you.
2: Uh, Sure, I'm right in front of Pan American, and your driver can't miss me because I'm that evil.
0: The film, Ganja and Hess. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled.
2: I'm Amy Nicholson. And
0: I am Paul Shear, And this is the podcast where we are looking at the best films of all time to see if they belong on the ultimate list that Amy and I are concocting of the hundred best, best films that then will be shot into outer space. Yes, it is happening. And Amy, so much is happening this week because not only are we getting towards the end of our horror miniseries but the very first episode of our brand new game show screen test has launched it's behind the paywall uh it's stitcher premium and uh i'm so excited it's out in the world
2: me too this is one of my favorite things we've ever done i am really stoked that people are getting to listen and now that we have really doors open looking for some good contestants yes
0: And for the show to continue, we need contestants. So now that you get a little bit of a flavor of what we're doing on the show and how fun and easy it actually is, you can now see if you have what it takes by emailing us. You can email us at unspooledpod at gmail.com or you can uh, sign up on Geneva to get your hat in the ring to see if you can have what it takes to win one of our amazing screen test pens that every winner walks away with.
2: They are so beautiful. So yes, what you're going to email us is just your name and we're going to give you a challenge. Your challenge is a 15 second video where you are the priest presiding over the marriage of the bride of Frankenstein. Wow. Record that 15 seconds, send it to us and we will look for contestants in that pile of priests.
0: I like that. That's a very intense thing to make people do. But uh, it doesn't have to just be video. You could also send in an audio uh, sampling of yourself uh, marrying people. Um, You know, now, Amy, since we're at the end of our horror series, the ones that we picked, it's time to turn the final pick over to our listeners. And they have spoken resoundingly uh, this time. I mean, this was a shocker. So many great choices, you know, uh, coming in. In the top five, Shaun of the Dead. We also have The Exorcist, Get Out, The Shining, Alien. But the film that we are doing next week is John Carpenter's The Thing. The Thing made it by, I mean, it won by a 43% margin. I mean, this was a trouncing. I mean, last time it was a couple of votes here. People wanted the thing. And I love it because I think the thing is the outside choice. For sure. I thought maybe it was going to be Exorcist or Get Out. But I love that we're going a little bit off center for these horror films.
2: I am excited to do the thing, too. That movie is so, 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 so fun to talk about. You know, I'm like a big John Carpenter nut. But to not do Halloween to do The Thing is such a fun choice for this season. I'm I, excited to get gory with it.
0: I can't wait. Maybe I'll even break out my Thing board game, which is amazing. Mondo, I believe, made a Thing board game. I have it. I It's great. You can get it online. It's pretty, pretty cool. It's kind of like Among Us, but as a board game. Um, But Amy, uh, before we can get to The Thing, we got to break down Ganja and Hess. And I want to save every thought. For right after, I say the magic words of unspool it. The year is 1973. President Nixon's VP, Spiro Agnew, resigns, admits charges of tax evasion, and is replaced by Gerald Ford. A year later, Ford will replace Nixon when he resigns. Secretariat becomes the first horse in 25 years to win the Triple Crown. The Supreme Court rules in Roe v. Wade, making abortion a U.S. constitutional right, Billie Jean King defeats Bobby Riggs in the Battle of the Sexes, thus proving that women are superior in tennis. And U.S. troops withdraw from Vietnam, ending the war. Theaters are playing Serpico, The Exorcist, American Graffiti, and today's film. I mean, that's really a stretch to say that theaters are playing this film, but one or two were playing Ganja and Hess. Let's take a listen to a little scene from the film. How are
3: you? Come this way. Then Jesus said unto them... Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood,
0: dwelleth in me, and I in him. Amy. Who's in it and what's it about?
2: Ganja and Hess. Well, this is a vampire-ish, love story-ish, written and directed by Bill Gunn. And it stars our friend from last week's episode, Dwayne Jones of Night of the Living Dead, as an archaeologist named Dr. Hess, who gets stabbed by a wooden dagger from an ancient African kingdom that gives him this addiction to blood. And the film is about his addiction to blood, but it's also an addiction that competes with his own thirsts and his hungers for things like reconnecting with his Christianity, his status in the world, and his whirlwind romance with the widow of the man who stabbed him, this beautiful, tough-as-nails survivor named Ganja, who is played by the actress Marlene Clark. Now, Ganja in Hesse is a vampire movie. There's blood drinking and immortality, and there's a lot of that fleshy eroticism that I think vampire movies do so much better than, you know, Frankenstein movies. But this movie never says vampire. It never says the word vampire because the gun is really interested in ideas about like philosophy and identity and art and religion and villainy and a whole bunch of inner conflicts that arise when one becomes a vampire. This story is a lot more experimental than everything we've done before. This is definitely the most experimental film that we've had on the show. So it will probably not surprise you that when Ganja and Hess came out on April twentieth, nineteen seventy three, it played for just one week at one theater. Um, but The next month it went to Cannes, and it was the only American film chosen to play on Critics Week, which is a huge honor. That did not help the ticket sales here in America. Um, The disastrous things were done to the film, which we're going to get into, which is why it is ironic that when you take that and rewind it back, the number one song on the charts on April 20th, 1973 was A Little Ditty by Tony Orlando and Don about a man who is scared that he will not be welcomed back when he returns home. It is called Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree and this song has a happy ending but Gondra and Hess had to wait for theirs.
4: I'm coming up now I've
2: Audiences did not really want Ganja and Hess, but now they do. Now this film has become a legit cult classic. It's building in its reputation. And I felt like this was a good time for all of us to sit down and look at this film that has been overlooked and is now resurrected, as a good uh, horror film is.
0: Yeah. I mean, I never had heard of this film. When we first started talking about the films that we wanted to bring to the table, what was really interesting to me about this film, knowing nothing about it, was that it simply starred the same actor from Night of the Living Dead, uh, Dwayne Jones, and it was very uh, different. And I thought, oh, that's a great way to kind of have these two films kind of speak to each other. You know, they're both these interesting films in the horror pantheon with the same lead. I did not understand. Yeah, especially
2: because that lead doesn't do, didn't do a lot of movies. You know, that right. lead, Dwayne Jones, is a man who was very selective, pops up only rarely to do things. was even talking at the end of the last episode how he liked to be an enigma. So for him to choose this makes us want to take a closer look.
0: Well, just to be clear, I think he's only in like three or four films. So he wasn't even selective, like not like Daniel Day-Lewis is selective. He was just like, I don't think he cared to act unless something really brought him to the table. And I'll be honest, just to kick off this conversation, I did not know what to expect from ganja and hess after my first viewing of it i don't even really understand what i saw but i want to see it again this movie blew my mind um and maybe it's because of the films that we are used to seeing on this show but this was one of the most experimental trippiest i just felt kind of lost in the art of it in the best possible way. Like, I felt very taken care of, but I hadn't felt uh, on such uneven ground watching a film in such a long time. I could not take my eyes off the screen.
2: I like that you use the phrase that you felt taken care of. Yeah. Because I was thinking about that, too, because I think this film you know, is very obtuse. It doesn't like to explain a lot about what's happening. It doesn't at all hold an audience's hand. And sometimes I'll see a movie like that and I'll be like, eh, you don't really know what you're talking about either. I don't trust you. Like, I'm going to have a foot out the door the entire time I'm watching this. But Bill Gunn, the writer and director of this, is an incredibly thoughtful, very detail-oriented, very ambitious, intelligent man, you know, comes from a very strong theater background. And... You know, he's saying a lot that he's not saying out loud. You know, it it made me feel that trust of like, this is a film that watching it. I want to sink into the scenes and play around inside of them and fill in the things that he's leaving out for me or for the other audience members to bring to it. Because and I and I felt like I was willing to do that work for this film because I do trust him. I trust this film.
0: Yeah, I think we live in a world where obtuseness is rewarded just because it's different, right? And I really want to just continually point out how much this film is a work of art. It feels to me on that level of Kubrick. Mm. Every choice is intentional, even though it might feel sloppy. You know, we're also looking at a cut of a film that has some uh, damage to it, right? Like, there's... There's a grain to it. There is a a look to this film that I think, uh, if you were to watch it for the first time, maybe lowers it. Like, oh, maybe it wasn't done professionally. But I believe all these choices are incredibly intentional. I mean, first of all, we just have to acknowledge the mixing of styles. I mean, this movie has these giant genre elements to it. Uh, but it also has a documentary sense to it. There are certain scenes in this film that are just straight-up doc scenes with these characters.
2: Yeah, there's a long church scene in here, a long church sequence that feels very documentary. It doesn't feel like you're watching actors. It feels like you're watching legit reverence and worship and prayer.
0: Because you are. It was shot in a church where there was an actual sermon going on. I was listening to the DVD commentary track on the Criterion uh, channel, and part of the agreement to get that church was that they would shoot during a service and they mixed their actors with real people. And that's what they got. Since he started at the top, I even want to walk one step backwards and say, let's start at the, the opening titles, because the opening titles to me even put me off my footing, because we are introduced to this character. They They introduce us to this doctor who now is a vampire. Like, that's what our opening titles let us in on. Like, he was stabbed and he's a vampire. So in my mind, the movie is starting with this character who is... A vampire, and we we hear from his chauffeur, who is also a, a pastor in this church, that our lead character is addicted to blood. But then we are immediately flashed back to see how that happened. But there's no real delineation on a flashback, or at least I didn't understand that there was a flashback. So when you see this sequence, you're like, oh, is he not a vampire now? Like you're constantly everything you're being told. It's like almost being led around in a haunted mansion with a bag over your head. Like you're being turned. Like okay, what am I? You're getting an idea of something, and as soon as you kind of get something, you're being pulled into a different direction. And and that that sense throughout the whole movie, I think, makes it incredibly engaging.
2: Yeah, right. Because you hear from this chauffeur slash preacher, which I, there's something in my head lately. Right. I just keep thinking about Chinatown and people like slapping him, like my chauffeur, right. my preacher, my chauffeur, <laughs> my preacher. But he, he introduces us to this idea of this man who is a vampire, and yet he also calls him a victim. And you get this sense really early on of, he knows what he is, but he doesn't hate him for it, even if he doesn't trust him for it. Like he's, his he's the chauffeur pastor's own feelings toward Dr. Hess seem really complicated.
3: For an unstable man, part-time to help support my family. I work for Dr. Hess Green. And he's an addict. He's not a criminal. He's a victim. He's addicted to blood
2: and honestly that that's kind of how I feel about this whole movie's approach. Like, I don't think this movie, as opposed to other vampire stories I've seen, takes a real, like, poor guy. Like, I can't believe he was bitten, poor dude. Right. And now we have to, like, go through his him figuring out what to do about it. Like, it's not, he's not, like, whiny-ass Brad Pitt in Interview with the Vampire, who I think really kills that movie. I'll I'll save my lecture on that because I have a really long one. He's a really hard-to-know man, honestly. Dwayne Jones is Dr. Heskreen. I mean, we didn't get to know Dwayne Jones's backstory very much in Night of the Living Dead. And even here, we're getting to go to his house. We're getting to see a lot of his choices, how he likes to decorate, how he likes to act. You know, that he likes to have a man who lights his cigarettes for him. And yet we're still kind of kept at a remove, which I I find really, usually I would find that frustrating, but there's something about Dwayne Jones where I'm like, I just want to be around you and figure out what's going on in your head, even though the movie will never tell me.
0: Yeah, I think we just also just need to acknowledge that while this is not a traditional vampire film, and I want to talk about that more in length in a second, but what Bill Gunn does here is he creates... Essentially, a format for the modern day vampire film. The vampire as victim, the vampire as addict. This is something that we see so much, uh, I think, especially in the 90s, um, where, you know, we're going away from the Dracula kind of vampire into, you know, the world of like the Buffy vampires. There are other things going on, there are emotions, there are these push and pulls of society. So I I really feel like we have to credit him for carving out this really interesting niche that I think has been exploited in films like even like Near Dark and in Lost Boys to a certain extent. And to just kind of dive into this a little bit more, like the idea of addiction, like what are we addicted to? And you can make the the clear comparison like, oh, well, you know, this is how we are when you're addicted to drugs and you get to be this other person. But I don't think that this is a movie about, like, drug addiction. I think it's more about an addiction to uh, cultural acceptance and uh, and gender acceptance and the wanting to fit in but knowing that you are different. There's an element here, here. I think that, like, obviously, race is playing a big part of this movie, very much under the surface. But I think the mix even between um, the the Western art that we see and the African art that we get into in this kind of these two parts of his life pushing and pulling him. And and because of that addiction of wanting to be in a different place or have a different social stand, standing or, you know, uh, be embraced by something else, what we find is this character completely alone.
2: Yeah, I mean, it feels like to me... That Bill Gunn is really driving home the point that even though this man is kind of the center of the world and the action, he's so alone. Like, he doesn't have friends ever. You know, he lives in a house with people who work for him that he pays to, like, bring him breakfast. He goes to that bar kind of looking for blood, but also he walks in the bar and immediately, you know, the people who hang out at the bar know that he doesn't fit in. He's like a mark. They prey on him. You know, he gets preyed on by people. He invites a, his new assistant um, to his house, um, the guy who's actually played by Bill Gunn in this movie, George Meda. And the assistant tries to kill himself and then kills him and then kills himself again. Like he, he can't, he doesn't have any friends anywhere. Like he's always very alone. Even when he's at parties, he's like talking awkwardly to his son. You know, they're not like bonded. They seem very estranged from each other. And you're right. I love how much of a role The decoration, the production design of this house, you know, really has to play. You always feel like there is, you know, a mix of still lifes. Like there's shots that look like still lifes. Here's some cheese and some wine. Here's a dagger. Here's a statue. There's um, classic, you know, the kind of classical, quote unquote, Western art that's all over the walls and seems to look over people's shoulders to be watching them, judging them, like cutting, like commenting on them, you know, like here's here's two people kissing in real life. Here's a statue of two people in a romantic embrace. The, there's, they're building contrasts with all of the editing between like the yeah. shots of the people and the shots of what's in his house. And the idea of where do you want to fit in in that? Like you're a man who likes and appreciates this art, which actually Bill Gunn was. Like from what I've heard of his house described, he lived in a house that sounds pretty much exactly like this house, you know, covered in, in all sorts of antique Western art and a mix of just like everything that he loved in this house. And yet for all of these faces on the walls, there is something so airless about it. This house doesn't feel like it comes to life until until Ganja bursts in. Ganja herself, who's just yeah. like, amazing.
0: Well, he's wrestling with this world that is not seeing him, or he's trying to... Like, I think until Ganja gets into the picture, he isn't fully realized. There isn't somebody that he can really be a companion with. And... And I think they both are looking for that in some way.
1: Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975, to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks.
3: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: But I think it's important to kind of step back one step and go: Why was this movie even made? Why was this movie even greenlit? And I think that from everything I read, Blackula was a huge hit. It was a black exploitation film, and if you don't know what black exploitation is, I'm sure there are people out there that can do a better job of explaining it. Uh, but black exploitation was this genre of film that I think had a lot of positives and a lot of negatives, right? So we see a lot of Black actors breaking free of the roles that they were traditionally put in, right? The, the the roles that we talked about, like, in the past, like these, you know, mammy roles or these roles, of they're essentially the heroes of their own story, but at the same time, they are also pushing forward uh, some stereotypical views, uh, you know, and so much so that, you know, You have a movement, the black exploitation movement, I think, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is very much a movement out of black power. But also, I think people from the NAACP are like, well, but hold on here, because I think this is doing a disservice to how people view us, because the movies did have shocking elements, you know, long sex scenes, uh, grainy film quality. There's a lot of things about it that made it feel other um, mm-hmm. A lot you know, of so violence. They, a lot violence, of like, yeah. who's
2: actually the audience for it? Like, is it to capitalize on the power of the bo- the black box office dollar? Is it also to like, you know, for midwestern white kids to like go to the drive-in and like laugh at? Like, it's kind of hard to tell. Hard it, plays, line. it plays in both. And it's, it you know, and it, some of the films were made by black filmmakers with, you know, black writers and often with like some members of the Black crew. Some of it was all white crew, all white director, all white writer writing a story. I mean, even something like, like Blackula, which we should play a little taste of that right now. Right.
3: You shall pay, black prince. I press you with my name. You shall be Black, the black Avenger rising from his tomb to fill the night with horror. Black, Dracula's soul, brother, deadlier even than he.
0: You know, Black Flightation. We talked about some of the elements of it, right? Like, but they covered every genre. Like, you have crime dramas like Foxy Brown. You have, you know, action and martial arts. Dolomite, I think, is part of that. And and Westerns and uh, prison films and, like, comedies like Uptown Saturday Night. Uh, you know, we talked even about Cooley High on this show. Like, so it became like this other type of cinema. And... There's a lot of good that I think comes out of it, you know, films like uh, Sweet, uh, Sweetback's Badass Song. What I love about this film, in a way, is it's kind of breaking some of those stereotypes of traditional black exploitation films. I mean, I think that was an intentional thing here. He was not going to make another Blackula. And in a way, while he embraced some of the tropes of exploitation films at this time, he subverted the genre or the expectation of the genre.
2: Which, by the way, it reminds me a little bit of, did you ever see that Saturday Night Live episode where they were talking about, like, TCM, really loving old black exploitation films?
0: Oh, no, I have not seen that.
2: Oh, okay. All right. Well, first, we have to listen to this.
3: Welcome to The Essentials. I'm Robert Osborne. Tonight, we take a journey through one of my favorite genres, the 1970s black exploitation horror films. There are so many classics from the era. Blackula the black creature from the Black Lagoon, and, of course, the Phantom of the Apollo. (laughs) But perhaps one of the most memorable was the 1972 classic The Bride of Blackenstein. Let's take a look.
1: (laughs) Blackenstein, you're my greatest creation, the coolest, baddest, blackest monster on the face of the
2: Earth. Ah... (laughs) And tonight, as I
1: promised, I will give you a bride. Ah.
2: I will say, by the way, Nicki Minaj is very good as as the bride of Frankenstein. Uh. She's fantastic in that. But yeah, because you, you hear this idea of like, it was a huge trend. There was money to be made in it. Everybody was like, I got money for you if you can make me a film like this that I can right. sell tickets to, make it for cheap, have a crazy title. We're good. And yeah, so Bill Gunn is... Being like, I'll take your money. You know, I'll take your like $350,000, which is what they were giving to him. You know, to the, the producers, right. they gave him $350,000. They gave our buddy Michael Schultz, who directed Cooley High, $350,000 for his first film. They also gave money to Maya Angelou, who wound up not making a film. Wow. But they're sort of like trying stuff. They're like, here's a little bit of money it's, and we'll see what hits. It's and the Bill Blumhouse
0: goes, model that we talked about yeah. last week. I mean, it's taking that same genre. Like, we can make money on this and we don't have to spend that much money. And so if it hits, it hits. And if it doesn't, it doesn't
2: very much and so they gave bill gunn this money and he i'm sure was like yeah i'll totally make this movie i'll totally make like another black vampire movie being like no not at all
4: bill had always has dying to do his own film write and direct his first feature film so he saw this as an enormous opportunity the last thing he wanted to do was a black vampire film but before he said no out of hand he thought wait a second is there a way I can use their money to do my first feature film use maybe a kind of vampire theme and do slight vampire but really do it for my own what I want to say about addiction so that for Bill this was a chance to do a film about addiction and I remember Bill saying to me you know the funniest thing in the world is there's this terrific thing about vampire movies about this terrible fear of blood drinking blood and so forth that blood is like ugh horrible. And he said, but blood is a, blood is what we all have in our veins. When we're dying, we get a blood transfusion. When people need blood, the Red Cross says, would you give your blood? He said, there is nothing more treasured and revered in our country and in the world than blood. It's a life-giving force. So he wanted to do a twist on that. And he also felt that the need for blood, the vampire's need for blood, or in this case, Hess's need for blood, was no worse than alcoholism, drugs, sex, any other addiction. Well, I think
0: what we're seeing here is he knew how to play the game, right? Because based on what I've read, there was a script that was a lot more straightforward. And those were essentially dummy scenes. You know, they were put in there to appease the people who financed the film. But what he wanted to make, he knew what he wanted to make. And when you watch the deleted scenes online, which you can see, you see, oh, well, this movie does make more linear sense. But that's... You know uh, i think we talked about it in an episode before like when you put in these you know if you have to shoot at certain places you put in these like uh placeholder scenes oh okay oh i understand we're shooting and and then when you get the set you make your own thing that makes me going back to what we said in the beginning appreciate this film because it's not obtuse for obtuse sake he could make the black exploitation vampire film if he wanted to this is a much bigger idea and I know I'm a white man trying to talk about what was in his head. I did a lot of reading about this because I wanted to feel like I was knowledgeable enough, but just even the idea of seeing a black man get into a Rolls-Royce in the back seat was mind-blowing at this point for many people in the 70s. Like and like these subtle choices that didn't register with me when I'm watching the movie. I'm not like pulling that in, but reading about like showing a man of this status and breaking those molds of, again, talking about those bad uh, or those stereotypical choices that were made in this genre. Like he is really like kind of immediately going, check this out and how empowering that is to be in the Brooklyn Museum and have this character there and being this erudite kind of guy. I mean, that's, you know, we don't know much about him, but. I think that Erudite feels like a part of his character.
2: Yeah. I mean, because of all the genres that they were making in Blaxploitation, what they weren't making was art films. You know, they weren't making the type of film that Bill Gunn was really interested in. Bill Gunn, loved loved Ingmar Bergman Bill Gunn was like I would love to make an existentialist film wow. that is really about a man in existential crisis and he said specifically not a black man in racial crisis a, a man in existentialist crisis and that was never getting made you know and and because Bill Gunn You know, his whole background, like he grew up in a really middle class household like his that was very creative, like his dad was a songwriter and his mother ran a theater group. And then he grew up to become a Broadway actor who actually worked with James Dean, like really early on, like they did a Broadway play together called The Immortalist. And he was very serious about being an artist. And he as because he spent his first like decade and a half in the arts as an actor, You know, he did a fair amount of TV work, but he was also aware that, like, all of the good parts that were written for a black actor were, he said, offered to Sidney Poitier. And then when Sidney Poitier said no, they rewrote it and just cast a white person. Wow! And so he wanted to become a writer in part to write the kind of roles he wished he could play, you know, that didn't exist for him as an actor and to give them to other people to play a part himself. I mean, he is in this film. I think it's kind of fun that oh, he he is the guy who creates the vampire you know i create the vampire on screen i create the vampire within the movie i stab him
0: and his character i think has two of the most uh shocking scenes in the sense of well actually his whole run is pretty amazing i i immediately leaned in when i saw him cuz like where do i know this guy and it clicked mid movie he was one of like the pinnacle buddies of Bill Cosby on the Cosby Show. So oh, as a he kid was? growing up, yeah, I was like, "Why do I know this guy?" It's like, "Oh, because he was on the Cosby Show." I loved the Cosby Show as a kid. So like, uh, I went to a taping; it was pretty awesome. Um, and uh, but that's how I recognize his face. He has such a great uh, face, right, and uh, killer mustache. But the first time we really meet him or get to sit with him is this really bizarre dinner scene where the camera's locked off. He's there. He's, you know, thanking the staff. And and then it goes into this doc moment where you start to really get into this character. And when it switches to doc like that, we talked about this in Mean Girls. Like, mm-hmm. they do a little bit of that in Mean Girls where the camera just kind of goes right to the front of the character. And it was so interesting. It was like, wow. Like, that's when I knew I was in store for something Really, kind of special because it felt so assured. And it's like, what are we doing here? Okay, all right, I'm in. Like, and this story he's telling, it felt like a story that Bill Gunn is telling, not a story that this character is telling. But, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. Like, my gut is that that's a story that. Bill Gunn had, the story of this director saying the the C word, mm-hmm. you know, during a, a shoot. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but it felt very real.
2: I mean, it does feel like a lot of the questions and the the questions about, like, what do you do about depression? What do you do when you're not mm-hmm. sure how you're feeling about yourself as an artist and what you're creating? I feel like all of that is incredibly autobiographical. Yeah. In that, Yeah, and that story about the C word, you know, it actually I'll, it took me like a second to kind of wrap my head around it. Cause at first I was like, Oh God, uh, why wow, this isn't funny. And then I was like, Amy, remember I'll, like a film isn't necessarily trying to like amuse you or vindicate everything that's happening on screen. Like the point of that C word story, I believe is that Dwayne Jones, does not find it funny, you know, right. like that here's a guy in his house who's telling jokes and trying to bond with him in a way that Dwayne is not interested in. And that the two of them are far apart in that scene.
0: But in a weird way, what I think he does with his own character is show this multifaceted person, right? And again... If I'm going to read more into the black exploitation of it all, I'll say he's breaking down stereotypes. That may be a character that you meet in a black exploitation film, and that's all you're going to get. Then the next thing we see, he's up in the tree talking about suicide. You only see him from the leg, you know, uh, his legs are down in, in the frame, and he's talking about, you know, killing himself. And then the next scene we see him get into a deeper monologue with himself, and then we, you know, we see him wrestle after he kills... Hess, we see him wrestle with this guilt, and all of a sudden, this character that introduces himself in one way as this potentially unrefined guy starts to show all these other sides. There's so much going on inside of him that makes his character fascinating. I think he's, in, I think he's an insane person, right to a certain degree. But that bathtub scene, if if any. Scene grosses me out in this movie. It would be that bathtub scene where he washes himself and then brushes his teeth in the own in his own <laughs> soapy bath water. I was like, oh god, oh, oh I can't. Oh, oh, like every part of that got me. I mean, that that was the grossest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, but also what a that's amazing your horror gem-
2: movie. His dirty bathwater. No, that's, my my, my heart. Dirty bathwater is coming for you.
0: Drinking it, brushing your teeth in it, what? spitting it, clean, washing your hair, and I was like, what is happening? Uh, but I think it does wow. a great job of like, kind of like he's when you creep inside your shower, oh.
2: Mr. Evil, filthy flower will make you brush your teeth with soap.
0: <laughs> but I don't know. There's something really interesting about how that character really continues to evolve and show all yeah. these signs as he gets. He's more unfolding, comfortable. right? He's just like, yeah, oh, here's
2: layers. Here's layers. Here's layers. Here's layers. Do you something- think that that's
0: why he killed him? because he revealed too much of himself like that's something that again i'm saying a lot of things as a white dude so please forgive me if i'm totally off base but like as a black man he felt uncomfortable revealing that much to another black man and then he's like oh fuck i need to protect myself so i like we don't know why he's trying to kill him uh but there's some element of did he did he expose too much of himself
2: yeah it's it's i have no idea Honestly, you know, because I mean, he know. gives yeah. that whole speech afterwards about that's kind of uh, anti-intellectual. It's it, it seems to be like it's a speech about how we are our own best teachers and how we need to have the proper respect for us as natural beings. You know, he has that lie to there, like, we are all nameless as a flower and that the sun doesn't teach us. The sun just opens our mind. And yeah. I wonder if there's something in like he doesn't respect the work that Dr. Hess does, you know, because Dr. Hess is a person who takes culture, you know, in history and mm-hmm. interprets it and puts it behind boxes and says, this is what it is and this is what it means. And I wonder if he just holds against everything he does. But then then again, like he is also his assistant. Like you don't just randomly get that job if you hate everything that it stands for. I don't know. And, and the way that he kills him, just that... That kind of the crazy killer music, the thunder, you know, the the POV kind of camera of like the yeah. camera kind of creeping into bed and attacking him, like the aggression of it is all so so vivid, especially because it's coming after this sequence that is just like dripping with death. You know, there's so much of a morbid fear for me that like kicks up in, in the noose scene, which yeah, I want to listen to a little bit of that. You know, and and here, like if you haven't seen the film yet, like. They've had this awkward dinner. Then uh, Dr. Hess goes into his backyard and this guest he's invited over is sitting in a tree with a noose. And Dr. Hess is trying to talk him down. Not even, it seems like, so much because he likes this man and wants him to stay alive, but because this is just a whole bunch of trouble he doesn't feel like dealing with.
4: It has nothing to do with me. No. Except that it's my tree and my rope. You see, that will give the authorities the right to invade my privacy with all sorts of embarrassing questions. Uh, Dr. Green,
3: actually, I thought to throw myself in one of your lakes, but I have an absolute
4: horror of drowning. Thank God your horrors outweigh your manners. I tried not to involve you. <sighs> Mr. Maitland. there's no possible way for you to know this, but I'm the only colored on the block. You see, and if another black man washes ashore around here, you can believe the authorities will drag me out for questioning. Will you please come out of that tree?
0: Well, I mean, and and there is a perfect way to talk about race in this film. You know, the, the idea that he's the only black man who lives in this neighborhood. So if someone ended up dead he would be the first person the cops would come to, right? So there are these subtle ways that he's talking about, yes, even though he lives in this neighborhood, he's still a suspect. He's still, um, you know, viewed as potentially a criminal. I want to go back to what you said about a disrespect for him being an anthropologist. And there's two things to be said there, I think. One, which is the way that Hess deals with that dagger it feels like that's not a dagger that he should have, you know, in his life. Right. But yet it is. It's it's he's playing with it like a pencil or something like that. The idea of like playing with this culture, not treating it with the respect it deserves. Right. And then that's ultimately what kills him. Right. It's it's sort of this power over this artifact, which I think is interesting. But I also look and go, well, he's an anthropologist. He's separate from culture. So that's what we see. We see this isolation of him. He is a person looking at other people, you know, uh, even with his son, the way that he connects with his son is by embracing a different culture. Like they can seamlessly jump into French. And, and then I love that
2: lens of the French, because I don't know enough yeah. French to know if they're having an interesting conversation, but you would think if it's your son and your father, you'd rather just be like, how was your baseball game? Tell me like, let's talk, let's bond about a thing instead of like, we're having a Conversation in French. It's a nice day. Right. How are you?
0: And I think it's like that pseudo-intellectualism keeps you from emotionally connecting. And then when he becomes this vampire, he is forced to emotionally or physically connect with somebody else. He has to um
2: he has to get his mustache covered in blood, man, oh, in full uh, close up. He's got to I mean, really wow. get in there and get to know your fellow human.
0: But but you know what I'm saying? I, I want to get into that too, but I'm like, but you know what I'm saying? Like, the idea of like, he loses that control to be on the sidelines. If this is a character who is constantly observing and, and looking, he loses that. And when he's a vampire, because he, he must kill, he must drink blood, and he tries in many ways to do it, you know, through the blood bank and things like that. But it's like that scene you just described, when he first sees him dead on the floor, you you feel this moment of he's literally being sucked in to the floor to lick up the blood. I mean, that's the most powerful scene. Like this man who is, has no control over himself anymore. The most controlled, uh, dapper, you know, refined man is now being... Like, like an animal, like in a way, like he just has to go against his, towards his animal instincts.
2: The struggle within him is like, who does he want to take charge? Is it where he's come from or where he's going? Like, right. is it, you know, it associates so much in this movie, the bloodlust with the sound of the ancient African tribe, you know, yes. the, the the Mithrians, that we hear their music start to rise and it lets him know that he's hungry or that it lets us know that he's hungry they're using, by the way, um, a music of the Republic of Congo, a type of music called bongili. And it's such an interesting kind of thing. Let's even listen to this a little bit of it here, the women singing. Uh, By the way, um, the woman who was playing, like, the queen, you know, the ancient queen who, like, in one of the Mm -hmm. scenes that he cuts out explains more about her, what she was doing. If you want to hear, actually, here's his explanation for this queen that doesn't get cut in. I kind of wish he had kept this in. It's it's tucked in a song, but I like that it's here.
4: It seems she needed such huge quantities of blood that her slaves were bled to death. It is said that in time, the entire population of Mirtha had become addicted to human blood. It was only a matter of years until an almost bloodless nation had begun to die of pernicious anemia.
2: Anyway, the Queen of Mithria is played by Mabel King, which... Do you uh, remember Mabel King from What's Happening? Oh, She's,
0: yes. Yes.
2: Yeah, that's her. And also, Mabel King is, to me, really famous because she plays another evil queen in a movie that I do love very deeply, The Wiz. She plays Eveline, the Wicked Witch. Oh, wow.
4: <laughs> Would you like sauerkraut or mustard, my dear. <laughs> On your hot dog!
0: Jada! <laughs> no!
2: It, it feels like the two things that are pulling Dr. Hess in different ways are this ancient history, this past that he does feel in some way connected to and also the modern history that surrounds him like he the film points out really early on that the christianity that he's drawn to or wrestling with or wondering if he should start believing again comes after all of this it's a newer invention it's a it's slapped on that like what did a vampire do before christianity like how did you get killed by a cross before christ even existed like this this that he's drawn to more of what seems like a, a construction than, than this ancient past that feels like blood. It's like very blood versus spirit or something. Well, I
0: mean, yeah. like This idea that he's kind of living this like bougie white world, like, you know, in with the art and the, the, the servants and the lighting, the cigarettes and all that sort of stuff. And then this more instinctual connection to this other part of himself, right? I think going back to even high school films, like... You know, this is what we we talk about all the time. Like, who are we versus who we are when we try to fit in? And and this battle that happens, um, uh, you know, between us, right? This whole movie is kind of this battle. And whether it's a battle of love, whether it's a battle of class, whether it's a battle of race, you know, I don't know how many movies can tackle this many topics, you know, without it feeling so over the top. It, it allows you to kind of, like, pull your own little pieces from it. But this is a person who I don't think he's happy until he meets uh, Ganja, who then you see his whole demeanor change. And I, I think that Bill Gunn, in a way, doesn't even like this character for a lot of the film. Like, I noticed that, like, his head is cut off in a, almost every mm-hmm. frame, right? Like, he's, he's not, you're not even really seeing him until a certain point. Until, like, I, I like this idea that, like, he is not fully realized until... He is letting himself, I mean, I keep on saying, like, get off the sidelines and get in the game, but, that, but there's some element of, like, until he gives over to love, until he gives over into his wants and desires. I feel like there's, that, that battle is really interesting for me.
1: Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks.
3: Life is a highway. And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Met So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: I'll be honest, like for me this film is interesting in mm-hmm. the first half. And then when Ganja finally comes in, when Marlene Clark finally comes in the movie, then it becomes really good. Like I like I like all the thoughts that, that yes. are happening. And the remove and there, you know, the cold intellectual part of my brain is having fun. But when she shows up, it's just a totally different movie. It's just like, absolutely. It's her movie. Feels, it becomes yeah.
0: her movie. And yeah, it's, I agree. I mean, well, I think in many respects, the, the, the very bare minimum of plot that this movie has begins when she enters, right? Like most films, what we see there, that would be the first act would be the murder of this, uh, This man who's his assistant. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's about a 40 minute chunk in this movie. And then once she calls, like, where's my husband? That's when that's the launching point. I mean, like, it's just the structure is off. But I I think you're right. I mean, that's that's the movie. I mean, I would I, I could watch her all day. I want a sequel with her. She's amazing.
2: Yeah. I mean, she just comes in like this breath of fresh air. You know, I also I also really like, like, the woman who plays the um, the sex worker that he meets at the bar. Like, that woman mm. also kind of pops oh, to me. as yeah. really interesting. Like, I love her. I love her wig. I love the moment she's like, you know, do you like me more this way? I'm also going to, like, have my man stab you in the back. Um, but she's just so funny. But then Marlena Clark is just, we get these little snippets of her at first. Like, she's introduced with her fingernails and then her lips. We don't really get to see, like, the full ganja until she shows up at the limousine and she looks like maybe this is why i'm thinking of chinatown she looks like faye dunaway in chinatown you know she's Mm -hmm. got the turban she's got the little fur wrap on and they have that moment where she looks at him she treats him like a servant because she doesn't realize that the doctor she's come to see who has her husband is black and then they share that moment where they laugh where they realize like they're both Used to this world of stereotypes and that they just called each other out on it, you know? Yeah. That he caught her doing it and that she, and that he, you know, broke the stereotype herself. That she, like, I don't know. I don't even know. There seems like levels to that joke I don't even totally get from my perspective of it, uh-huh. but like they share it and it's, and they let their guard down. And then she puts her captain on and then she seduces him and then she tells him that story about her ballet dancer friend in the Mexican weed, which we have to listen to that.
5: He went to Mexico to dance at the Palace of Fine Arts. That's where he scored this stuff in Mexico. And, um, I think he came up with a really fantastic, ingenious thing to do, right? He puts the grass in a prophylact and rolled it up so that it's like a suppository, you know? And then he just, you know, (laughs) <laughs> then he puts on all these shorts, right? Like four pair, pulls them on. Because they've got these dogs at customs, you know, when you go through, and they can smell anything. Well,
1: almost
5: anything. <laughs> and hey, man, I think it takes a very heavy cat to come up with that. I really do. Don't you think so?
2: But yeah, I mean, from that story, she's just so earthy. You know, her husband tells the story about the Seaward, word. She tells that story. But like he seems a little bit more engaged, at least when it's her.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, we're also talking about these characters that continually unfold. I think when we first meet her, we think something. We had our joke in the opening of the episode, like the idea that she says, I'm that evil. Right. And when she comes there, why is she there? For money. She doesn't seem like she even wants to find her husband. Right. And then she finds her husband and then when she finds her husband, then it changes once more. Like, she's constantly evolving. I mean, that's why the end of the film, that last image of her in the windowsill is so incredibly uh, powerful. I mean, there's, like, she... You know, we're talking about people just revealing all these different sides of themselves. And, and I want to go back to our conversation about exploitation and going, like, is there a part of this cinema that was allowing black actors, yes, they were breaking the mold of what they were traditionally viewed as, but they were also still being viewed as a one uh, perspective type of person. You are this, you are that. You are, like, you have no other feelings. You are a criminal, you're a hero, you're this, you're a sex god, you're, you know, whatever the, whatever the thing is. And here, I think every one of these characters like, I'm this, and I'm this, and I'm this, and I'm that. And it's like, what well, you talked about this idea of like, yes, parts were only being written for Sidney Poitier, and if they couldn't get him, they would go to a white actor. It's like, where were no parts to play different levels. There were no other versions of them. It was like, I am only for this. And I think there is, uh, there's something really, it seems conscious about making all these characters constantly kind of surprise you, like real people do.
2: Exactly. I mean, I think her character's just so amazing. Like, yeah. Like, that she... She's definitely a classic gold digger in a lot of ways. You know, like when she realizes that he has the man who lights the cigarette for her, that she can have Archie go get her grapes, grits and grape jelly instead of eating croissants. You know how much she loves it. She's like nibbling on that rose or the flower that's right by her mouth. And she's just got that big fake smile. Her pretense of putting on fancy airs is really funny to me. Like the way that she insists on Archie opening the car door for her. But then she slams the kitchen door in his face while he's holding groceries. Like, she just takes up so much space in this movie that I want to give her. Like, I just want, like, an entire Ganja movie. I just think oh, she's yeah. fantastic. And her I answers mean, are...
0: If, if this mean, if this movie was successful, there's a sequel. I mean, right? Because it's, like, mm-hmm. it's set up for a sequel. She literally takes over. The the student becomes the master in a way. Like, you know, and especially as the man that they both killed rises from the water and races toward, You know, she is she is kind of possessing that Dracula narrative that, uh, that Hess never really does. Like you feel like she is going to be incredibly powerful. There's a really cool story there of this like powerful female vampire. Um, but then if you look at it from the idea of like this woman who just, uh, thrives and succeeds and no matter what you can't keep her down, there's something really powerful about that narrative too.
2: Right? Because we know a lot more about her life than we know about the doctors. Yeah. You know, because she tells us more about it. The doctor doesn't really have any monologues that like open up to us that much about who he is. Whereas, you know, Maida does like her husband does and she does. And she has that one where she's already discovered that this guy she barely knows, but she's already been romantic with because he's clearly rich and maybe can take care of her well. Has has her husband dead in the wine cellar, like in the freezer. Yeah, And she tells him that story about being a little girl and her mother calling her a slut for being out playing with boys. Someone said they
5: saw you be- being chased by a boy. I said, we were all chasing each other because we were having a snowball fight. And she said, you are a liar and a slut. And I said, I swear to you that I was having a snowball fight. And she didn't believe me. She never believed me. It was as though I was a disease. I have a brother that's 10 years older than I am. I have a sister that's eight years older than I am. So that I was obviously an accident. And it was, it was ganja, I came down with ganja, you know. And I think that day, I decided that I was a disease. And I was going to give her a full case of it. That whatever it was I was, she was going to have it.
2: What works so well about that is, you know, the very last thing that she's saying in there, like, I will provide for Ganja always, is really all you have to know to understand how she immediately forgives him for killing her husband. And in the next scene, they're, like, playing around like little kids. And then she'll say yes when he proposes to her. Like, she will take care of herself always. And it's, like, I kind of, I guess, a a thuddingly obvious character statement, but it's perfect for me. Like, it's perfect. Like, I just I have that and then I'm able to fill in all the blanks about what she's doing and why. And I believe her. Yeah. Like I fully believe her.
0: There's something about the idea of the church, right? In the beginning where it's like if you follow God and you live a good life, you're accepted into the kingdom of heaven, right? And then we have this we have this character that uh that Bill Gunn plays who is walking this line of being conflicted, you know, uh, am I stealing, you know, like what am I doing? I, you know, like it's, it's sort of this conflicted artist. Like I'm taking from culture, but I'm not necessarily doing the right things. And I, I'm, I'm feeding an instinct, but I feel guilty about it. like, he is kind of like in the Catholic sense, like he has that, like um that guilt, right. That Catholic guilt mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that I feel like I'm, I'm wrong and I, I don't deserve to be here. And I've made the mistakes. And Ganja represents This other point of view of like, I'll do the fuck I want when I want to do it. And I'm actually the happiest. Like she's the happiest of them because in a weird way, uh, both men fall victim to their own guilt. Like they both kill themselves um, because they can't, they're wrestling too much with not living as the way that they're told to live, if that makes sense, like, or at least that's I'm looking at, like the church is like, and I think that's why he goes back to the church. It's like, I need to go back here, and 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 yes, I've made a mistake, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna change my life. Whereas Ganja really has free will, right? Like, like I think that's the whole thing with Christianity. A lot of times, like, you have free will, you can do whatever you want, but there's also this amount of guilt. Like, if you do do anything off the beaten path, you are not going to go to heaven. You're going to be this. So you're going to have to pay penance. And she's the only one that is comfortable with her true free will or, or or with the decisions that she made where both of the other men are completely conflicted and overwhelmed by not following the status quo.
2: Yeah, it's simpler for her, right? Because she yeah. just wants money. Like, you know, she wants money and she wants to be okay. Like, she wants the things that keep you alive. I mean, yeah. Like, her wanting money is, like, you know, a squirrel being like, I would like to get more more walnuts for winter, please. Okay, I'm great. I'm all set now. Like, she's, she's connected, it feels like, to the rhythm of the world. Where- well, she also
0: says, I don't have to abide by the the rules that you put me in. Like, what you view a woman as, like, I think that she has a very stereotypically male attitude in this film, which I think is very bold. She's defying what society says.
2: Yeah, well, it feels like she's taken stock of what society has to offer and she's figured out how she wants to do it. And I was thinking, actually, like speaking of her seeming more natural, Mm. you know, that scene where she um, kills the dinner guest that he's brought home for her and she seems, Mm. you know, she goes back and forth from like enjoying it to them being covered in glitter to them being covered in blood to her screaming. I want to play her screaming because I swear you hear the exact same jaguar growl that you hear in MacGruber. Oh,
0: wait, what?
2: Yes. So Hess decides to reach out to Christianity. And Christianity, the way they describe it in in this, it it honestly has a lot of similarities to, to vampirism. You know, you always hear like the Greek, gods then wound up having their gods being repurposed by the Romans who gave them different names, but kept the stories. When you hear the way they describe Jesus, like a guy who like feeds you his blood and it helps you stay alive forever. Like you're like, Oh, it, the movie almost feels like it's making the point that the Jesus myth came out of this earlier religion that was started in Africa, you know, bodies in Christ and cannibalism. And yet, even though God, even though the doctor like gives himself over to this Christianity at the end, it doesn't save him it it, it kills him well you that's what it's I'm not saying like it's you like you are now healed it's like right. you are now dead
0: i think this is the battle of christianity to a certain extent or maybe any any religion where you feel uh you know embraced and taken care of by this this world but you also feel incredibly judged by them and i i can speak to it because i grew up catholic like being a good catholic right making the right choices and And you see the power and the problems that that actually holds if you were to live like that. It it, it burdened these two men to death. And I know that we're talking about vampires and shit like that too, but we're not because he clearly is not making just a vampire movie. Does this movie or does Ganja's... Role also remind you a little bit of like the role that Scarlett Johansson has in Under the Skin. That's oh kind my of gosh. how I saw. Her. I actually
2: was going to say that because oh, of the really? inky, yeah, because of yes. all the inky blackness too. The way he shoots it, it feels very like Jonathan Glazer. Well, the dark yeah. blackness behind the noose and the kind of otherworldly cinematography. I was thinking of the cinematography more than the character, but wow.
0: Well, I think that there's something. I mean, Scarlett Johansson's character isn't as realized as Ganja is, right? Like Ganja is like. A thriving, alive person, you know, and 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 I think Scarlett Johansson's character is like this alien, you know, a, a robotic alien. But there's something about this power over, like I'm going to do the thing that I need to do to get me to this next level. There's a a slight similarity between uh, the two, I think. Um,
2: no, yeah. you're right. I feel like watching this. You Can definitely, I would imagine that Jonathan Glazer would point to this as like one of his big influences.
0: Like, I mean, I loved Annihilation, I think we often see it a lot in sci fi and genre film like, this mm-hmm. idea of like trying new things and doing things in a very interesting way. I, I don't know, I, I love it,
2: yeah. I mean, what it really reminded me of was um, which would make sense because they're both drawing from the same well, was uh, First Reformed,
0: mm.
5: yeah. You know, oh, yeah, movie yeah, but
2: like annihilation destruction guilt like wrestling with religious concepts and you know for me myself like i grew up with parents who are two different religions so mm. my earliest memories of religion are being like well one of them is wrong and probably both are if one oh, wow. is like it wouldn't be right it wouldn't be fair if one of them was right and one of right. them was wrong um so it's I'm really interested in religion as like a concept and as a history. And like I went to Catholic school for a lot of my life and I've spent a lot of time in religious areas, but it's never, I've never felt as tormented by questions of religion as other people are, but I enjoy watching them go through it. You know, I, part of me almost wished I was more, more come conflicted about religion because I feel like then Dr. Hess's struggles would hit me even more than they do because for me, I'm like, I don't want to go there anyways. I've done my time. Like I'm, I'm, I'm out. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that this is a man at a crossroads in many different respects. And I think he goes for salvation at the end to the worst place, uh, to the church who tells him he's wrong, right? Like, even though they're not telling him he's wrong and he's not admitting, it's all internal, but that's kind of the reaction. I kind of feel like is he, he goes to the place where he's not accepted, where he should have maybe gone to Ganja and 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 they could have been this. He would have been happy. He was happy. But it is interesting that in many respects, the only time he's surrounded by people or a lot of people of color is in church where the community accepts him, right? And this idea that we must follow the community. So maybe it's not a, a statement about church, but we must follow what the community around us believes instead of pairing up with Ganja who he's kind of isolated with, he more defers to the community and that, again, you know, he's a man out of place and he's trying to constantly find his place and he's never quite sure if he's in the right place. And I think that that's a thing that we can all relate to. Am I doing the right thing? Am I with the right person? Did I make the right choice? Did I say yes to the right thing? You know, so he is constantly somebody who is never quite confident in his choices and is flip-flopping in a way
2: yeah we we even have kind of that contrast in the film of like the two wedding ceremonies, you know, like that mm. first wedding ceremony, which is more traditional, where ganda and yeah. has get married, and you look at the wedding guests and nobody seems happy for them, like nobody's yeah. happy that this is happening, no one's glad like there is no community even when it's a, a public wedding, yeah. And then they have what I think of as kind of their second ceremony when he turns her into a vampire, you know, that feels like it's shot like a wedding to me. It feels almost more honest and romantic. Yes, She's got the little yes. bouquet of flowers, you know, they're, they're, they're a team. Now they start to dress more like each other when they're dragging corpses into the field to bury them. Yeah. Um, but it it feels a lot more romantic. Like that feels more honest than anything else.
0: In many respects, this film is so powerful and so interesting because there are many interpretations and, and like a great director, again, the capable hands of Bill Gunn is he wants you to bring to it what you see and what affects you. Like this is, you know, a movie that probably is viewed as exploitation, but I think that's a disservice to this film because while it shares some of the tropes of the genre um, You know, the grainy film, the sex scenes and the red blood, it is so much more because it really is an existential film. It's about humanity. It's about how we fit in. It's about being addicted to uh, status, success. You know, you could draw the, a line and it's lame, but, you know, to acceptance, you know, and you see it with social media and you see what group do you fall in? And, and if you are ostracized from that group and how do you, you know, it's this constant battle and this jockeying of position. Can you be comfortable with yourself, even if that means that you're alone? Because there's something about Ganja that makes me say she can. And there's something about Hess. And when we first meet him, that says he can't, he is, he's struggling and he struggles even like he continually struggles to be by himself. And when, I don't know, there's, there's a really interesting idea of like what acceptance in society looks like and how, you know, where your happiness is derived from. And can it just be from yourself?
2: And that makes it, I think, almost more ironic that that dilemma happens to Bill Gunn with this film, you know, that he makes this film that finds acceptance abroad, you know, I mean, 300 American films competed to be chosen for Critics Week. His was the only one, the only American film that was chosen to have that honor at Cannes. You know, it becomes, it's voted at the time one of the 10 best American films of the decade. And it plays here for a week, uh, totally crashes. The producers take it away, re-edit it. They cut, they chop it down from like just short of two hours to like 76 minutes They give it like a gazillion names. You know, they call it Blood Couple. They call it Double Possession, Black Evil, Black Vampire, Blackout, the Moment of Terror. They try everything to try to get their money back. And he takes his name off of it. You know, almost everybody involved in the film actually takes their name off of it, except the cinematographer who was like, well, it's still my shots. So they're fine. You know, I feel like they still look pretty, even if they're chopped all to hell. Um, And so, yeah, like he puts forth this this body of work he says like here I am here's what I want to do and he is excommunicated from the community like it doesn't work for him and so I think that that's such a a kind of sad twist to happen to a film that's asking about that like how can I fit in what do I do
0: I just think that this movie is and was smarter than the room and I think that people should definitely you revisit love I love the room, <laughs> but I do think that like people need to see this film, but it's almost better served seeing it now where you have no real expectation of it to be anything more in many respects. Uh, it is like uh, the gem from uncut gems. When you look inside of it, you will see uh, what you see about yourself and, and the world and what it speaks to, you know, um, I don't know how I just found out that Spike Lee did a, a remake of this film that was totally uh, crowd finance, which I didn't know at all, because I know that he like almost did shot for shot and word for word at certain points. Can you do that on this film? Because it's so intensely personal. I don't know if anybody else can or should remake it. That's not like remaking Psycho. Like That's a whole different weird thing. This is like this is something that Bill Gunn felt in the moment like I think you can make a movie like this, but I don't know if you can remake this movie. Even though, even if you do do all the things that Spike Lee did, you know, shot for shot and and dialogue, I don't know. It's 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 such a I think filmmaker to film a personal thing, and then viewer to film, uh, you know, connection.
2: Yeah, I think I'd rather just see people make films in the spirit of this film
0: yes you know continue
2: to say like i don't want to have to fit in whatever this little box is or i will use your box in order to make my own thing
0: we know obviously it goes to can it gets standing ovation but it's pulled from the theater like you said you just described all the ways that it was kind of chopped and, and torn around but what were the reviews like i mean what were people angry that it wasn't blackula
2: well, very few people reviewed it as it was. Um, one of the people who did was the New York Times, which okay. started a whole kerfuffle. So the New York Times wrote, As a Black-oriented contemporary horror study, Ganjanhas is dedicated to what is obviously meant to be a serious theme. The artistry for which it strives, however, is largely vitiated by a confusingly vague melange of symbolism, violence, and sex. The reviewer says that it leaves a compassionate viewer with a pressing need for fuller explanations and then the critic calls Bill Gunn's elliptical approach to the sanguine subject as ineffectually arty and it does little to con- conceal the film's accent on blood and nudity. Then it says of Bill Gunn as an actor, he is merely given to pointless philosophies. And he calls Duane a dour, laconic type uh, who rates little sympathy. He does, however, like uh, Marlena Clark as Ganja and says that her line, the, where um, she where the, uh, where Hess asks her if she minds that he's psychotic and she's like, everybody is into something. He says that that line is, quote, about as funny and rational as Ganja and Hess ever gets to be. Hmm. So not a rave, but where this became interesting is Gunn himself wrote to the New York Times and they published it. Um, and he wrote a whole letter on what it was like to be a black filmmaker in 1973, where he was talking about. Criticism at large, specifically this review, but also other ones he got. This is a little long. Here we go. Um, These are the highlights. The full letter is online. It's very good. So Gunn says, there are times when the white critic must sit down and listen. If he cannot listen and learn, then he must not concern himself with Black creativity. I've always tried to imagine the producers waiting anxiously for the Black reviewer's opinions of The Sound of Music or A Clockwork Orange, you know, trying to like, put the yeah. links back up on why why is this happening um he points out that the new york times actually had a factual problem in their review um then he says that other critics who reviewed it one critic only watched 20 minutes and then left and still reviewed it anyways huh. um another critic he said watched like three movies that day and then had to review them all and he said that's no way to work which as a critic right. you actually sometimes have to do that um and then speaking to critics at large he says you know i know this film does not address you but in that auditorium, you might have heard more than then you were able to over the sound of your own voice. Then Bill Gunn said that another critic in his review wondered, quote, where was the, weight, the race problem? To which Gunn said, quote, if he looks closely, he will find it in his own review. Then Gunn says, if I were white, I would probably be called, quote, fresh and different. If I were European, Ganjan Hess might be that little film you must see. But because I am black, I do not deserve even the pride that one American feels for another when he discovers that a fellow countryman's film has been selected as the only American film to be shown during Critics Week at the Cannes Film Festival. Not one white critic from any of the major newspapers even mentioned it. And then he again t- like takes some pointed looks at things that people said. He said The New York Times just called Marlene Clark, one of the most beautiful women and actresses I've ever known, um, as, quote, a brown skin looker. And that kind of disrespect could not have been cultivated in 110 minutes. It must have taken at least a good 250 years. Finally, he says, your newspapers and critics must realize that they are controlling black theater and film creativity with white criticism. Maybe if the black film craze continues, the white press might even find it necessary to employ black critics. But if you can stop the craze in its tracks, maybe that won't be necessary.
0: I have nothing really to add to that, besides it's like that's a, a very astute point of view. I think to a certain degree, right?
2: It is, and I wonder if the New York Times listened because you know a few years after this, when they reviewed Cooley High, they did have a black critic review that film. I wonder if this letter hit them, and they were like, "We should do better." Because remember that critic wrote that really personal yeah. review about what Cooley High meant to him.
0: And I think it, I think it's tricky. I think that like all these things where we are supposed to be critical. Like, art is subjective, ultimately. Like, what I connect with with an art is different than what you connect with in art. And I think that there are some shared things that we can all agree. What we connect with will always be personal. You could get five people in a room, show them five pieces of art, and they could all pick a different piece of art that resonates with them. And no one's wrong. Then there are the pieces of art where everyone agrees that's a piece of art. Mona Lisa is a piece of art, right? The AFI list, most of the films on that list are a piece of art, right? Whether or not we like it or we don't like it, we can agree that that is what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there are these movies that are here that if it doesn't speak to one person, they can really destroy what it is. And, you know, I think we're seeing this online, and this is the world that you live in, Amy, so it's like you, you're living in this online world where there's so many more voices, which maybe balances it out, but back in the day, one bad review, because there were so few reviews, could really tank something if it's just not a piece of art that you respond to, but that doesn't mean that it's not a piece of art that, like, no one should be responding to every piece of art. It's just not right. I don't think that just Black reviewers should review Black films, but I also don't believe... That, you know, it's a weird it's a weird middle ground because you don't want because that's a segregation of that, too. It's like, well, you know, where does it stop then? You know,
2: it's true. I mean, I wrestle with this a lot and I come back to the idea of reminding myself to never be dismissive, Mm -hmm. which can be hard. You know, I feel like what you have to do as a critic is you have to review a film against the film it was trying to make. Right. Right. Do you know? So you like watch this film and you're aware that he's trying to make something that's boundary stretching, like that he was trying to do, you know, as one of the one of the ideas that he said is like, I want to make an elliptical film starring black actors, because in an elliptical film, you say that these people are enough that just existing makes you worthy of camera attention, Mm. you know, and so to get into his head, then you have to review, like, did he do it well? Like, did he do a good, maddeningly elliptical film instead of did he do a straightforward film that I understand and had lots of thrills? Right,
0: Right. I think you're right. That's a really good point. The idea of what your expectation is versus what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that a lot in reviews, the preconceived notion versus the yeah, no, just judge me on what you're watching. But I think it's hard. I think it's a hard business. I remember talking to, you know, to someone about, you know, certain shows and uh, their viewer and they were saying that like, oh, I only get to watch like the first two episodes of everything. And and I decide whether or not I like it based on those first two episodes. And I could honestly say like, if I chose to watch most TV like that, I don't know Mm -hmm. if I would love my favorite shows, the ones that really resonated with me. Like for me, you know, a show like The Watchman or a show like The Wire, uh, Deadwood, um, are shows that built and grew. Like, they're not just like, out of the gate, like, I love it, perfection. I mean, most sitcoms are like that, too. I think what you said is right. Like, the idea that we really need to put our expectations on the side of the road and just see what's ahead of us and mm-hmm. enjoy it for the ride that it's going to take us on, not what the ride that we want it to take us on. And I think that that's, for me, these last two films have been really fun because I didn't know what to expect. And I didn't put any preconceived notions on it. I just kind of went and, and enjoyed it. Whereas I will be honest and say, like, I'll go to see an Avengers movie or a Spider-Man movie, and I, I know what I want to see, or a Star Wars movie, I know what I want to see. And if they don't hit those things, I may be upset. You it know, and that's... That's
2: why their fandom is so angry all the time. Yeah. Because they feel like, they, they feel like, it's mine! You belong yeah. to me. I know who you are.
0: And it's, it's tricky. I, I don't know. It's, it's a lot. I want to just read this one thing, not to make this about Spike Lee and his remake of it. When you read that other review, it made me think of this one that I read here from Matt Zoller-Seitz. He said he gave it three out of four stars. And he said, Lee's most persistent problem, an inability to unify his messages and make them cohere, doesn't really hurt him and The Sweet Blood of Jesus, because the film is a hypnotically nightmarish mood piece more than anything else. It will prove either maddening or refreshing, depending on whether your willingness to go where Lee takes you overwhelms your desire for something more conventional, neat, and clear-headed. And I really like that review, because its I think that that's—that that is actually what it is. If you want to go on this journey, you might have a really interesting time, but if you're looking for something that is, you know the inside man or the 25th hour or do the right thing. You're not going to get that here. You're mm-hmm. getting something you're just getting, you're, you're getting this and that, you know, I thought that was like a really cool way of, of acknowledging there could be two very different points of view on this film.
2: Very much, very much. And I think a film will usually tell you who it is and what it wants to be fairly mm-hmm. soon. You know, like you, buy, I so there are a lot of films I'd like to rewatch because right. They don't announce themselves immediately or it took me a while to sink in. But this film, I mean, the way that it begins, the sound design and everything sounding like it's coming from another plane, you know right away with this film that you're watching this for a different reason.
0: But on top of this, I would also argue that this film probably pays off huge dividends on uh, on rewatches. Mm -hmm. Because it's almost like then you can appreciate different parts of it. Like, this is like, this is something you can really sink your teeth into like a vampire. But uh, you can, you know, you can just kind of, I love that idea. I think it shares a lot of DNA with Kubrick in that same idea of like, there are a lot of distinctive choices. So my question to you, and as always, we have to say, well, what would the aliens think of this? Or what would, you know, what would be the benefit of putting this on our list of 100? Yeah.
2: You know, I will say this will probably not make the aliens 100. But I think that out of all of the films that we've been doing on the horror section, this will probably be the one that I catch myself thinking about more. You know, I was comparing this in my head um, this morning to Tenant. you know, because my mm-hmm. boyfriend and I we rented out a theater so that we could watch Tenant by ourselves. Love it. Which isn't AMC that expensive. And people are no, it's not it. that bad.
0: 149 bucks for Tenant, 99 bucks yeah. for Back to the Future. It's great.
2: Not that bad. Not that bad at all. So we did that. And, you know, Tenet is also a film that is incredibly elliptical and complicated and, you know, doesn't hold your hand throughout the whole thing. And I have not found myself thinking about Tenet. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure that if I thought about Tenet really hard, like I would figure out how all the pieces lock together and it's a puzzle. But it, when I, feel, I feel like if I thought about Tenet with a lot of intensity, I would just put together a puzzle. Whereas I think with a movie like Ganja and Hess, if I think about it intensely, I might just build an ant farm. Like I might just go burying my way into different corners of sand. And that to me makes it much more worthy of contemplation.
0: Amy, I just, as you were saying this, I'm dancing over here because I'm like, you just nailed Ganja and Hess. Like, (laughs) because here, I'll tell you why. In my opinion, Christopher Nolan is Hess and Bill Gunn (laughs) is Ganja, right? It's like in, in many respects, like this, I'm distanced from this thing. I'm looking at this thing. I think a lot of the time I love Nolan films. They're very emotionally distant, right? Mm -hmm. They are clever. They're interesting. They are beautifully shot, but they're not, they don't leave there going, oh, I love those characters. I can talk to you about Leonardo DiCaprio's character forever. You know, it's like that slicked
2: back hair and that froggy face, boy, (laughs) and dead wife, gotta love it.
0: But if you look at something, but, but we're talking about these ideas that like are both obtuse and like, Bill, this movie is incredibly emotional, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we're connecting to it. And to me, maybe you, I don't know, I just feel like you just broke down the dichotomy of these two characters, this Ganja and Hess, this, um, of this heart versus brain and how do we find, what is the right way to be? You know, I, I don't know. That's at least what I just got from that. I was like, oh, it just feels so clear to me. Like, this is, these are the story. This is the story of a woman who is ch- is chasing her wants and her desires and a man who is trying, is not living that way and, and kind of creating structures around him or trying to uh, be in a structure. There's something really interesting about that. Um, I do believe that this probably won't go on the list of 100, but then at the same time, like, why not? It's one of the most interesting films that we've seen. It's one of the most groundbreaking films that we've watched in this entire series. So for that, I would be like, yeah, fuck yeah, put it on the list. It's so weird. It's so cool. It it embraces exactly what I think about The Room being on this list. It's like, we're making a list of the 100 best movies. Like, you cannot tell me that Ganjan Hess did not influence so many big directors. and 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 not only... You know, black directors like Spike Lee or I would think Jordan Peele has connections to him. You know, these people who are, uh, are making horror films obviously have a connection to this film. The idea of the vampire genre has a connection to this film. But I would also go and say, like, what we said about Jonathan Glazer. Like, visually, there's so much stuff here. Like, the DNA of this movie might be... Because my immediate thought was, like, no, this doesn't go on the list. But when I look at it and I go, well, maybe why not? The DNA of this film is... Incredibly powerful. And it goes against my whole idea of like, well, who does it best versus who does it first? Mm-hmm. But there's something going on here that give me a couple of weeks and let me see where I'm at, because I just kind of came out of this film. But I don't know right now. I'm like, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um
2: well, we still have one more horror film to get to that
0: We do, we do. Um and I'm excited again. This has been a great series. Uh, and I'm excited to get something a little bit more traditional, something a little bit more commercial. Uh, this will probably be. Yeah, everything be...
2: we've done up until now has been pretty low budget.
0: Yeah. I think
2: is... Frankenstein was our biggest budget, and probably in Frankenstein dollars of 1931. <laughs> I mean, it's
0: pretty amazing. Uh, so, yeah, I can't wait to get into the thing with you and John Carpenter, obviously, legendary. Uh, director cool guy and musician gotta get his album if you've not listened to his albums they're great Uh, and uh, you can check it out wherever uh, movies are streamed it's out there but let's take a listen to the trailer
3: 100,000 years ago it found its way into our galaxy frozen wasteland of Antarctica it could not escape now the men of station four have made a monumental discovery an alien creature had frozen
4: but not to death
3: is the
0: warmest place to hide. Well, I'm so excited Amy to get some vintage Kurt Russell with you. Uh it's going to be really fun. And then uh, the following week should we do the prequel? Yes. Prequel. <laughs> <laughs> the prequel of the thing, Mary Elizabeth Winstead gets get on it, get in it. Um, all right well this has been a pleasure chatting with you and uh, I can't wait to hear everybody's thoughts on this film Uh, as we wrap up the series we'll do what we did uh, last time uh, the week after the thing we'll get on twitch and talk to you so keep your thoughts uh, ready to go because we will uh, have this bigger conversation with y'all in uh, just a couple of weeks